Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. As a traveler, it's a fact you're going to need to manage your spending in different currencies. You need a service that not only helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, but also does it without the hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This is where WISE comes in. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. I've been a customer for over a decade. It's been a lifesaver for me as a traveler, a nomad, and now a permanent resident abroad. If you're a traveler who's still using your regular bank, you need to check this out. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to WISE for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. I'm always fascinated by people who take off to travel and never come home <laughs> for whatever reason. And my guest today is one of those people. She followed her passion for ocean conservation from the UK to Mozambique, where she is living now. So you're going to hear what life is like down there, why we should visit Mozambique. We talk about her experience running the nonprofit. You know, you hear a lot of these stories where these nonprofits come in and just sort of try to do, they have their own agenda, if you will. And we get into that and how important it is to work with the local community there and how she does that. And she shares a lot of knowledge about ethical travel. You know, when you go to certain countries, say Thailand, for example, and you get a chance to see the elephants either at a sanctuary or you get a chance to ride an elephant. It sounds awesome. But what are you really supporting when you go do those types of things? I think as travelers, it is our responsibility to be educated and to do the best we can to make good decisions so we know our tourist dollars are going to good things that are not only great for the local economy, but also good for the planet and humane and all that kind of stuff. So I learned a lot of new things in this chat, and I'm sure you will as well. And that's just a little taste of the topics that we touched on today. I had a great chat, and I am very much looking forward to having you listen in on it right now. So shall we? I say we shall. Strap on in, grab your favorite beverage, kick back, relax. Thanks for being here and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friends. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. Now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks so much for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire. How are you doing, my friends? I've been touching base with a lot of people in this community, in the Location Indie community, which is the other community I run with my buddy Travis. And yeah, I, I mean, it's great being around so many positive people because it seems like across the board, 
there are certainly ups and downs, but at least a lot of the people I'm interacting with are kind of seeing this as an opportunity to either learn new things or maybe just get back to the simple things. You know, living simply is one of the things that we talk about in this show, and you'll hear how uh, how my guest today is living down in Mozambique and how much different that is from her life in the UK. And, and one of the things we talk about is reverse culture shock and what it's like when she goes back to the UK. And yeah, you'll you'll hear that in the interview. But this is something that's been coming up a lot, you know, for me personally, and probably for you too, and other people that I've been chatting with. This idea that, you know, I feel like during this whole Uh, quarantine situation, we're really kind of getting back, maybe we're forcing ourselves to get back to appreciating those small things, right? I mean, I always love looking out my window, especially in spring, looking at the flowers and the trees and trying to pay attention to the seasons as they change and just be in tune with nature in that way. But I think even more so, the small things, we hear a lot of people starting to bake bread that's becoming a, a trendy thing, right? Like, baking bread was just it's a simple human activity right baking a loaf of bread and i think in our busy world maybe we haven't been making enough time for the small simple activity so i don't know about you but i have been enjoying that aspect of it and i always think it's a good thing when travelers i'm mean, at least for me when when you shrink your world back down right you go out and you explore the world you go see all these places but then there's also beauty in shrinking your world down to whatever the the four blocks around your house or whatever the case is. We were talking to somebody on a zoom call yesterday. Uh, Shout out to Harry. If he's listening, he's saying he's enjoying drive driving aimlessly around New Jersey. And uh, my friend, Melissa, who's also in our location in the community, she's been going around her neighborhood doing these fun photo projects, taking pictures of random gloves she's finding and also taking pictures of, random lions and tigers she's finding because she watched the tiger king a couple times <laughs> and got in into spotting uh lions and tigers like statues of them not actual lions and tigers she lives in the united states but we are all finding our little grooves right my buddy jason too he uh, he's hiking the same trail every day and isn't there something to be said about shrinking your world up a little bit and finding the appreciation and the joy in that I think we do that naturally as travelers you get to a new place and and you just you appreciate everything because it's all so new and fresh and we can take this as an opportunity to see our own neighborhoods and our own backyards as new and fresh places and I think that adds depth to everyday life and that might be one of the many good things that comes out of this whole situation so what are some other good things that are coming out I don't know you let me know. What have you been up to? What are some of the interesting things you've been doing since this whole quarantine thing started? Drop me a line anytime, Jason at zerototravel.com. I'm going to give a big shout out to somebody in this community at the end of this show. So stick around for that. Right now, I want to slip and slide into this interview for you today. By the way, if you haven't signed up over at zerototravel.com and you want to get on some Zoom calls and future events and things that we're doing, I'm creating... A free workshop for you all right now that you can check out at some point here in the near future and thinking about doing another live podcast. So all those types of announcements go out on the zero to travel.com email list. So if you just sign up over there, you won't miss the good stuff off the podcast and you can connect with people in this community. 
off the podcast and online and hopefully soon in real life. (laughs) We're getting there. All right, please enjoy this interview. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you on the other side, my friend. My guest today is the founder and managing director of Love the Oceans, an award-winning nonprofit marine conservation organization based in Mozambique. You can learn more about what they do over at lovetheoceans.org. I'm so excited to have her here, Francesca Trotman. Welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. (laughs) Hiya, how are you? Uh, I'm good. And you're in Mozambique now, is what you said. We just, we literally chatted for about a minute before this started. So I didn't want to ask too many questions. The COVID-19 thing is in full swing. How are things going down there? I think it's kind of the same the whole world over. So the government's just announced uh, lockdown, well, a national emergency, which is essentially a lockdown for a month all but essential businesses are shut and everyone has to stay at their houses and no social gatherings and all of that kind of stuff. So it's pretty much the same as what's going on elsewhere. There's just significantly less healthcare. Um, (laughs) Everyone's just being extra cautious and yeah, being sensible and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, So I think it's more or less the same what seems to be going on around the rest of the world at the moment. Yeah, being there and knowing the situation with the healthcare and I don't know what your personal situation is with, with all that, but I mean, mentally, how are you doing? I mean, at this point, would you rather be back home where you grew up or yeah? No, I don't think so. Like here where I live is very rural. So there's not a lot of people around. So in terms of like actual exposure, I'm a lot less likely to get it in Mozambique than I am in the UK. But having said that, if I got it here, then obviously, and it was bad, and it wasn't one of the mild cases, um, that would be really problematic. So I'm fine at the moment. It goes through phases and waves. Most of the time, I'm fine. And then occasionally, I'll have a little freak out where I'll be like, oh my gosh, if I get it, I'm screwed. But then I also remember that I have um, a lot of friends here who are older or have pre-existing medical conditions and they would be a lot less fortunate than I am like I, I would likely be okay touch wood given that I'm younger and and have no pre-existing medical conditions that I'm aware of so I think I, I would be all right but um I mean only time will tell really yeah I think everybody's towing that mental line to some extent right it's it's like it's easy to kind of fall the other way and spiral into this uh the worry the worry hole the black hole of worry we can call it i guess yeah and at the same time it's like you also want to make your days as uh good as you can make them like normal and yeah, exactly. um, still be productive and not think of it as death right over your shoulder every second of the day right yeah Otherwise, it just gets too scary and too much. Yeah. So how has this affected your nonprofit and all of the work you're doing there? Um, a lot <laughs> is the short answer. We usually have international scientists. We work with lots of different universities and all that kind of stuff. Everyone international has canceled at least, in, well, for, for now, basically, until... July at the moment, but we obviously have no idea what's going on with COVID and when that will end and when travel bans will be lifted and things like that. 
So currently we're kind of hoping to get back to it in July, but that's still quite up in the air. Um, but right now I would be running a course with Newcastle University, but they've had to cancel because of all the travel bans. So um, it's very quiet. I would usually be diving every day and community work and things like that. But all of our community works had to be cancelled because obviously people interacting um, and not social distancing is not something we want to encourage. And then we've got like all of our research because it's a national emergency uh, all but essential businesses have have to not run, which means our dive centre can't run. Um, so the boats aren't going out, and the people that would usually run those boats as well are obviously at home, um, self isolating and and being socially distanced. Um, so that means that we can't do a lot of the research that we wanted to do. So it's all kind of come to a standstill at the moment, really. Um, and we've moved a lot of stuff online. We're spending more time on like online campaigns and. Um, kind of education through online means rather than anything else which is fine it would be nice to to be out and be doing stuff and everything be normal but obviously normal is not something that's happening in the world right now working on big projects or you're running a company or a nonprofit like you are you know there's so much going on day to day that sometimes it's hard to press pause and and actually take a big picture view on on like where you're at but this is almost like a forced version of that right yeah i'm just wondering if that's doing anything for you differently like it personally or professionally uh not necessarily with the with the whole organization but what it has meant is that we've got a bit more time which is basically we've always been time poor and now we're obviously time rich which is a very weird situation to be in because everything with the organization has always been very fast moving fast paced um, and now suddenly we're having to just pause everything and think about how we can fill this time constructively. Like Pascal, for instance, he's our community outreach manager, born and raised in Mozambique locally to, to our base. Um, and he now, like we've been meaning to do it for a while, but now he's finally got some time to do some online learning and doing some modules and distance learning, um, some university courses and things like that it's helpful in that way and we're finding time to do things that we potentially didn't think about before and especially especially with like the online stuff um people are having to get very creative because everyone's just moved online um so it's thinking about coming up with new campaigns and how to interact with people that's not going to bore everyone and how to kind of add variety and Obviously, it would be great to be running as normal, but um, we are trying to utilize this time and kind of do the things that perhaps we didn't have time to do before. Were you growing up in a rural area like you're in right now, or were you in a more densely populated area? What was growing up like for you in the UK? I kind of grew up in a, I would say suburban, like it, it was, I lived next to a wood, but we still had like normal neighbors in the neighborhood and you know you could go trick-or-treating within walking distance as a kid kind of thing um so yeah kind of suburban um spent a lot of time outside my nickname when I was a kid was wild child <laughs> um, my mom even made a little sign for my door which hung on my bedroom door um <laughs> for like 10 years I mean doesn't that kind um, of reinforce the wildness right like if she wanted you to calm down that's not a good way to do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think I was just always like my, my brother's always been he's very intelligent um and he's always kind of been very straightforward 
um, academic, all of that kind of stuff. And I've always just been a bit of a loose cannon. So I think my my folks were just kind of like, sure, just go ahead and be free. <laughs> and then I just trusted that I'd kind of come back to it and, and uh, I don't know, grow up kind of normal. <laughs> so uh yeah my my childhood was quite yeah suburban normal I did a lot of sports and stuff spent time outside a lot of swimming uh, and then I learned to scuba dive when I was 13 and that was kind of the big game changer for me um so then I just spent all my time kind of all my free time reading books watching documentaries David Attenborough Jack Cousteau all of that kind of stuff and fell in love with the marine world and then from from about 18 on mm, yeah, age 16 to 18 onwards, I was kind of traveling either with friends um, and then boyfriends or solo. And it was always going somewhere that where the sea, where there was a good sea, uh, where I could go dive and see some beautiful corals. Right. That was your passion, diving. So you were, yeah. you were traveling for the diving scene. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, always have and probably always will. I, I Even though I, I totally get the land stuff, um, so for instance, I was in Egypt last year. I do underwater photography as a second job and I was shooting for a liverboard, um, which is basically like a boat that you go on for I don't know, like a week period, I think most of them are. I was shooting for this boat. So you basically just live and breathe diving for um, however long the cruise is. And I decided that I'd never been to like Pyramids of Giza or any of the like um, big temples or anything before. So I wanted to do a bit of culture. And although that was really incredible and it was like mind blowing to obviously go and see these temples that are thousands of years old. For me, it's always just like it's the sea primarily. And then if there's something cool on the land nearby, then I'll go and see that. But um, <laughs> it's about like the nature kind of primarily for me. I mean, you're a marine biologist, so it's not like you were just reading books about these things and becoming passionate about it. You actually followed this all the way through. You followed your passion through, and now you've created this nonprofit, Love the Oceans. It's always interesting to me because I'm one of those people that some people I know, they're like, I want to be a doctor, and then they just, they're like, they know that young and they just do that. That's like the thing. And that was not me. I was sort of like all over the place. But it sounds like you found your passion pretty young and you just kept kept at it, which I think is a beautiful thing. You know, it's like you find something you love. And um, if you're getting the support and the encouragement to do it, why, why not? Right. Be around the things that you love. My mom took me to the London Aquarium for my eighth birthday. And that like I was pressed up against the shark tank like a weird little kid. <laughs> and um, so sharks were always kind of like the thing that I'd the animal that I'd like, I think most kids attach to dogs and stuff, but I attached to sharks for whatever reason. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so that was kind of the reason that I became like obsessed with the marine environment. And then the more, I think it was just a thirst for knowledge. Like the more I read about stuff, the more curious I was. And then when it came to university, um, I just knew that I didn't really find anything that interesting apart from the underwater world. Uh, well, actually, I, I um, was big into music as well. I, I uh, did music A-levels and stuff and played instruments. Uh, but my parents did not want me to be a musician. They said it was an unreliable career. Um, so I, choose mar I chose marine biology instead. And now I run a charity. So make of that what you will. Um, but, um, yeah, so it was kind of like a toss-up, really. And then I just did marine biology because it was um, supposedly a more reliable career. I started the organization while I was at university. So I did my, um, I came out here on a photography internship in, ooh, when was that? 2013. Um, 
and then uh, while I was here, I saw my first shark killing, like humans killing sharks. And I, I knew about the shark fin trade and what it was and that it was really bad and unsustainable, but I didn't, I'd never like seen it in person. And obviously it's a completely different thing um, reading or watching films about something versus actually witnessing it. So yeah, I then did my master's. I came back out and did my master's with three research assistants, collected data on the shark fisheries here, looking at the shark fin trade in Mozambique and sustainability of it, and then founded the organization initially to continue that research um, because I didn't have enough data to publish a paper off the back of my master's to lobby the government or change legislation or protect the sharks at all. So the only way I thought I could um, actually make any kind of difference was to um, continue that data set. So yeah, I basically um, created then created the first like volunteer team essentially and then kind of ran from there um and our director andrea she came on board in the first year as well um and yeah we've just been kind of running since so it's um yeah been a been a wild ride <laughs> that was since 2014 right you've been running yeah so i founded it in november 2014 was the official registration we really started work in july 2015 because i graduated and then flew straight out here. Um, and then, yeah, since then, we've kind of been working mainly seasonally. We've done a bit of off-season work, but um, mainly from like March to October time. Um, and now we're just beginning to work all year round. Well, I love that way of thinking, just to pull something out of here really quickly. It's just this idea of, you know, you can go a couple of different ways when you're at that point where you're like, all right, I don't have enough of a, a data set here. I need to continue my research. It's like, well, you could you could go out and try to get grants and and try to get other people to give you money. You're just like, you know what? I'm going to take matters into my own hands and just create this foundation, which I think is a, I don't know. It's just a, it's a great way to approach things. I feel right. It's like kind of, you know, you can only control what you can control. And I think that's, that's a huge lesson we're, we're all learning right now in real time with uh, everything that's going yeah. on in the world. It's I think I'm, I'm lucky because both my parents are entrepreneurs as well. So it kind of, didn't really even like creating my own thing I mean it was scary don't get me wrong and like I I definitely um I had like a three-day panic period that I allocated myself like I knew that something big would have to happen like I'd have to register the organization and I'd be like oh no I can't possibly do that and then freak out for three days and then I'd do it on the third day um so I gave myself like three-day panic period to just freak out over things um and I still kind of use that now but it yeah I don't know I it just seemed like the best solution to a problem in terms of like getting action done quickly and being able to continue that data set it just seemed like the the best solution rather than because grants can be very sporadic and they're so unpredictable and you just don't know like whether you'll get it you can invest a lot of time on, on a grant proposal and then not get it and you've just kind of wasted I mean you've still got obviously what you've submitted your proposal that you can recycle and use for other grants but still it's, it can be really tricky to navigate that field so I just thought that yeah starting a charity was I don't know simpler I guess <laughs> yeah <laughs> it is scary in, in that way like every small thing is like oh my god what am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. This is crazy. Um, what is it about the area? Was it just because of the nature of the work that you were going to be pursuing? 
and he mentioned uh, you know being interested in sharks, the the shark fin industry. But was it just that, or was it that you fell in love with Mozambique and and this area? Um, it was probably threefold. So it was partly like just the work, like the problem was here, and that's what I wanted to investigate. Um, then it's also a very typical area. So where we are is very normal in terms of like the coastline of Mozambique. So by developing a strategy that can help this community, it has the potential to be replicated up and down the coastline because this is just such a typical area. And then on top of that, obviously, I fell in love with the country and the people and the wildlife. And um, yeah, it's it's a really, really amazing country and just, well, I call it home now. So Okay, um, you live there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I have my residency here. It's just the most amazing country and, and most beautiful people and, and wildlife that I've ever come across in my travels, at least. In what way? Um, well, we for our wildlife, um, we have humpback whales June to October, and they are very plentiful. We have loads and loads of humpback whales, uh, like so many that in the mornings the humpback whales are sleeping and sometimes it's difficult to move the boat around because you just can't see them and they're everywhere. Um, so we have loads of humpback whales, which is amazing. They're one of my favorite animals. Um, we have a lot of sharks. We have dolphins. We have whale sharks. We have manta rays. We have all of the like uh, sexy species of marine animals um, that kind of people travel the world to go and see. And then on top of that, uh, the people here are the friendliest. It's the friendliest culture I've ever come across. Um, especially our local community. Like it's actually rude not to wave at someone, even if you don't know them. <laughs> so you just constantly are waving while you're driving past people. And it's a very welcoming community. And yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just definitely one of the friendliest cultures that I've spent time in um and i've never felt like in danger or threatened in any way um here it's always it's always been very very friendly did you move there by yourself or did you have a like a partner in this organization did you bring a team down there how how did that work? was a pretty big step to move to a foreign country in that way especially one where you're not really established. You're really coming in as, a, as an outsider. I mean, I, I live in Norway, but my wife's Norwegian. So I came here because of that. That's an example of kind of, you know, half of us is based here, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, people ask me this and it, I think it sounds weird when I say it, but the way it happened, it wasn't weird for me um, that no, I don't have a partner here or anything like that. I came out here alone for the photography internship when I was 19, I think anyway and I've always loved travel and adventure and stuff like that so that wasn't really that was the first time I've been to Africa I think yeah I think that was the first time I've been to Africa but even that wasn't I don't know that scary for me at that point um because I knew where I was going it wasn't like a random like I'd, I'd I was doing an internship where I knew there was like somewhere an end destination kind of thing. I wasn't just randomly backpacking from there. I actually stayed that, that internship was based in this bay, which we're still based in now. So I actually made friends in the two months that I was here and like, then it just kind of built from there. So it was then sort of the organic. Next year I came out. 
yeah so the next year I came out and I bought three research assistants and we spent four months here and my friends that I'd made the first year that I'd come out were still here so you kind of build on those relationships um and then yeah it was it was um Mozambique's visa situation is tricky um so if you want to spend basically longer than three months in the country you have to get your residency and then our seasons also started becoming longer and longer so in order for me to stay from March to October at least I needed my residency so then that just seemed like the sensible uh like thing to do uh so then I got that and then and now I've got like a strong base of friends here um so whilst technically that's like, where your life is you've created a life yeah there, right exactly and whilst none of them are like my nationality or i didn't move here with anyone or to anyone i actually really like having such a diverse group of friends to hang out with people from all different walks of life and backgrounds and all the rest of it um makes very interesting stories <laughs> <laughs> is it a like a strong expat community there are you talking locals uh, imagine a, maybe a mix yeah it's a mix so uh i've got like our director married one of the expats here so he lives um like five minutes drive away so i see him quite regularly um then pascal's our community outreach manager um, and we hang out, well, we obviously not right now because of COVID, but, um, we would normally hang out at his house. Um, so we're quite good friends. Just everyone kind of just hangs out because, um, the way that you live here is quite open in terms of like, you don't have your fenced off garden. Um, everyone just kind of like walks between houses and hangs out and pops by each other's houses. It's very social. Quite, um, yeah, it's quite relaxed. Obviously not right now because of COVID, everyone's on lockdown, but normally you would just kind of like wander past someone's house and pop your head around the door and just say hi and stop for a cup of coffee. So it's uh, in terms of socializing, it's quite easy. Um, so yeah, it's a mix of backgrounds. How has being out of your your culture back home and, and living in another culture for an extended period of time, how has that changed you? Um. I've actually really liked the change that I've seen in myself from spending so much time in a different culture. So in European culture and Western culture in general, I think there's a lot of pressure on people, um, both women and men, to conform to social norms and look a certain way and care about the way you look and what you weigh and how much you work out and what I don't know clothes you wear and stuff and here no one cares like it's the value of you as a person is almost a hundred percent based on you your behavior and how you interact with people and how kind you are I mean don't get me wrong there's still some expectations especially of women of like when you get married and when you're gonna have children and for me I'm 26 and it's like I'm basically a spinster in Mozambique culture really? wow. for not being married and having kids. Like average age of marriage is about 15 in our community. So um, 26 is like really old not to be married and have kids. But my friends, obviously, I like I've talked about my culture and how things are different um, in the UK and how like that's how I've been brought up. And so that kind of isn't really a thing even anymore. Um, and I've noticed that I care a lot less about the less important things in life through spending more time here. It's really good for my mental health um, to actually like remember that what you wear and the way you look and 
like whether you're skinny or curvy or whatever, that none of that matters. Like it doesn't matter at all. Um, it's about how you act and how kind you are and how generous you are and things like that, because you don't have to be rich to be generous. Like my friends here, a lot of my friends live below the poverty line and, uh, I'll still go over and we'll share food and they'll come to mine and we'll share food. And there's not that you can still share what you have. Uh, you don't have to be absolutely loaded to be generous. And I think it's yeah, really important, um, kind of check for me because, I remember like coming here the first time I ever came here was um, obviously a bigger cultural shock than it is now. Now I'm pretty used to flipping between two completely different worlds. But when I first came here, one of my friends um, asked to borrow the equivalent of about $30. So he has two wives. You're allowed multiple wives here. Um, And he has nine. Well, he had nine children at the time. He's got 10 now. Um, and he asked to borrow 30, uh, $30 and that was the equivalent. Uh, so that bought him electricity for his family. Um, I think it was for six months. And for me, I got back to the UK and I think I got back in December and I had to get a winter coat and I was just stood in the shops and I remember standing there getting absolutely furious because all of the winter coats were obviously way more than that. And in my head I was like, but <laughs> Eugenio's family now has, like I can buy so many people electricity and it's just that it can really mess with you for a while. So you have to be really careful that you handle that um, carefully. And at some point you do have to kind of draw a line and say, okay, these are the different worlds that we live in. Whilst it's really infuriating, uh, you have to be realistic about what you can achieve and stuff. And so getting people to fundraise in the UK is very successful. And that's one of the best ways to bring that money then over to Mozambique. Um, but you can't just go up to random people on the street because they just don't like care as much essentially because they don't have that personal connection. So me getting angry in the middle of H and M because of a coat being expensive is doesn't make any sense to like your normal person who has no connection to Mozambique whatsoever. So you also have to kind of do a reality check and kind of be like, hold on, I'm getting into my headspace because of my experience and I need to make sure like you, you can, you can do stuff to improve that situation, but you also need to make sure that you don't get in your own head too much and you know where to draw the lines and stuff. I'm sure there are aspects uh, about life there, daily life there that maybe the UK version is, is better or more enjoyable in some way. I imagine <laughs> Are there some um, things you miss. Yeah luxury yeah (laughs) um i live in a i live in a straw hut here um so there are a lot of creepy crawlies which i'm not a big fan of i woke up last night to something crawling on my face and i don't know what it was oh (laughs) man (laughs) and yeah i mean it's africa so what are you gonna do (laughs) but um you just hope it's not a poisonous uh spider or something yeah i mean I've already had a spider bite in the last week, so I'm hoping I don't get another one. And I'd really, yeah, prefer to not get one on my face. Um, but, uh, yeah, I cook on a stove, um, but two of the stove rings have rusted shut because I live by the sea, so everything rusts into and it's flat. So I've become, like, quarantining on one stove ring with no oven is difficult like I've, I think I've missed being able to cook like I really like roast vegetables for example like honey and lemon roasted veg 
and I can't do that right now because I don't have an oven. Um, so I'm getting very inventive with recipes that you can do using one skillet on a stovetop. But yeah, I think it's like the small luxuries and things that I miss um, from the UK. But I mean, I you also become accustomed to it after a few weeks. Like it can be a shock for like the first couple of days or whatever. But I think after a couple of weeks, you you just kind of get used to it. And then it, I'm, I'm not really that fussy, so it doesn't really bother me that much. Um, if something's broken or like just not accessible, then it's just not accessible. And I just don't really spend much more time thinking about it. Yeah, It makes you more flexible, I think, as a person when you put yourself in those situations, right? And I mean, I think flexibility is a great, it's a wonderful um, thing that I've carried with my, for myself, for my travel experiences, you know, it's like, hey, I mean, it, it just, it's just a great thing that uh, I, I can't say I wouldn't be this flexible if I, I don't think I would be as flexible as I am in certain situations or adaptable if I had not done all the traveling I've done, but who knows? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'd be a completely different person if I hadn't spent as much time as I have in this straw hut. <laughs> like I would, I think I'd be fussier. Like I, I look at some of like my peers or family um, and sometimes they can be, they can complain about stuff where I'm like, really? Is that worth complaining? Well, isn't that like the UK about? way? Don't you complain about like, yeah, isn't that kind exactly. of like part of the culture, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think it, I think it actually saves me energy because I just don't waste the energy worrying about stuff that's either completely unchangeable or not worth the worry. I do want to get some travel tips on Mozambique, but let's, let's save that for a little, uh, a little later. I just wanted to ask you about, working with local communities in the way that you're doing because i'd imagine you know you said you were studying the shark fin industry and like you said it's a maybe a a country where a lot of people are or a portion of the people i'm not sure in, in mozambique's case but are maybe living below the poverty line and then trying to stop something that's making them money and feeding their families and all that even though from an ethical standpoint you know, you, you have different perspectives and things like that. How do you balance all that? And this could be for, for, you know, not just somebody in your case, but I mean, for travelers too. Yeah. So for us, it's, um, we're not removing a source of income. You've got to, if you're telling people that you can't like that, that like, I don't know, um, finning is bad kind of thing. Um, then you need to be providing them with a financially feasible way to live more sustainably. Um, so we actually have a lot of education projects um, and we have an alternate livelihoods plan as well, which is basically coming up with new ways of making money. So um, we have like a honey harvesting project and an aquaponics project. We also teach swimming. So moving people from, um, netting, which you can do from a boat, um, over to spearfishing. But in order to spearfish, you also have to be able to swim. Um, most people in our area can't swim. So we also teach swimming. Um, so some of it's about like, um, thinking about why people live the way that they live and what barriers they have in the way to that stop them living more sustainably. Um, and it's picking apart that and, 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 ways in which you can help without being without making assumptions um because assumptions are a really big bad thing to do when you're traveling um assuming that a culture is a certain way or assuming a need is there um without actually checking um 
So we do like needs assessments every year. I meet with the elders who are basically like the mayors of each community. We work in two communities. So I work with two elders and we meet with them. We talk about what they need and what they want from the year, what what the biggest community needs are right now, um, how we can help. And we have a very transparent relationship. They actually own part of the project. So we talk about um, budgets and like it's very yeah it's basically very transparent I think being very transparent um, helps that relationship hugely because each party can just knows what's going on and can trust the other party so there's no kind of like hidden anything there and yeah making sure that you don't assume um, that a need is there when it might not be um, so people associate like poverty when you think of poverty, you think of a lot of um, kind of stereotypical things that go along with your image in your head of what a poverty stricken Africa looks like. And that may not necessarily be what the area looks like at all. Um, and you need to kind of think about that and how um, helping people out of poverty may you may think it looks one way, but it might actually look completely different. Yeah, having an open mind with that, I would imagine, is is huge. Like you have to basically eradicate your Precon- yeah, yeah, preconceptions. Yeah, or like the things that whatever steady media diet you were fed growing up on a particular region. Unfortunately, that's kind of the the go to images, right? Like for a lot of people, if you're not openly creating an awareness ar- around that, this might not be the case yeah um, and you've got to look at you personally and why you're motivated to do that work so for me it was all about the marine animals and for a successful conservation strategy you need to involve humans in the solution because they're almost always the cause of the environmental problem but it's also about like in Africa especially there's been a lot of like um, colonialism and those kind of traits are still in existence around really um because it just is so historic so like mozambique for instance was colonized um in the 1400s then it was white ruled and it had apartheid south africa next door um in right through the 1900s and um you have a lot of racism um associated with that and and you've got stereotypes that fit that too so you have to um, make sure that you break them down and, and think about what's motivating you to go to these places. Um, there's, there's such a thing as um, the white saviour complex, which is basically when um, white people feel, um, I don't know, that they have to go and help um, poorer people in poor areas of the world. Um, and if that's kind of the motivation, you need to break down inside you why you feel that way. Um, rather than because you don't want to go somewhere because you feel guilt for being the color you are or anything like that and you also don't want to go somewhere where you think that you know best um, even though you might not actually realize that that's the way that you're thinking Um, but you might think that oh well this would help them but actually would that help them and have they asked for that and have you even talked to them about it before you've gone and done it Um, so it's also like breaking down what your kind of rhetoric in your head is around your position in the world um, and where you're going and what the culture is there and how they might perceive you and what historic background there is there, whether there's any kind of racial backgrounds there too that could come into play and things like that. Um, It's very complex social issues um, that you have to consider when you travel to new cultures and different countries. 
It's a lot to consider. <laughs> it's a lot to go within and figure out. What is your advice on how to to kind of sort through all that? I mean, is that a process that you went through when you were starting this up, or was it was it kind of just yeah, learning definitely. on the fly? I, I guess what I'd be looking for here is some yeah, some lessons learned, maybe some mistakes made, and just some good solid advice on. Uh, I know a lot of travelers, you see parts of the world and like a lot of people that I've interacted with, they may be interested in starting nonprofits for various things. And we can talk about, even if you don't want to do that, I know you do a lot of talks on ethical travel, so we can get into that next and, and kind of how people can travel ethically and volunteerism and things like that. But yeah, go ahead. So I, I'm a scientist, so I read a lot of papers on best practice and, and new research and things like that. So for me, it was about checking in. Um, so just checking in with the elders um, very regularly. Uh, if I had an idea, instead of going, I have this idea, it's going to work because of this. It's, I have thought about this. What do you think about it? And getting that 50% input that you need. Because if it, you're a team, it needs to be 50-50. So getting that 50% input you need. Because um, whilst I have the academic background, um, Silva, for instance, who's one of the elders here, he has the cultural background. He knows Mozambique culture a hell of a lot better than I ever will. Um, he knows the history of the area. He knows the people. He knows um, all the chiefs for whichever industry that we're talking about kind of thing. Um, and he knows any possible families that might object or be particularly in favor or anything like that so he's going to bring that aspect to the team too um, and that's really important to consider um, for me I've read a lot of books around um, and just read up online basically around colonialism specific to Mozambique and also just generally um, and the problem of like white people and and the white savior complex um, I find it a very interesting issue to read about so I think reading and, and kind of increasing your awareness around that can be really important. I kind of saw it happen through other people, other white people doing some pretty horrific stuff. And then I would see it happen firsthand and go, bloody hell, I'm, I'm never doing that. I've got to make sure that I never, ever do that. Um, we've had we have a lot of missionaries kind of come up and join um, or try and help the community. And I've seen some pretty bad stuff happening um it's really important that you think about any negative implications that your actions could have and that there's no like if you're religious that's fine you want to go and do some religious work that's fine but you need to make sure that there's no kind of payoff um so like uh, for instance there's a school further south from here that's um run by a religious group and they won't let the kids eat lunch unless they go to church which obviously is not good because you're forcing people into a religion um, through withholding food in an area that's very poverty stricken. So obviously people are going to go to church, but I've also seen like there was a school, um, South African school that came up here uh, again, um, religious base and the, so we were already, we work with the schools. So I knew they had teacher pretty well at this school that they'd gone to and the head teacher called me and I, I came over and um, Pascal, our community outreach manager, was there as well. And this school had kind of continually said that they wanted to build a jungle gym. And these schools aren't fenced. Um, so Mozambique families are very big and generally you'll have the older kids looking after the younger kids. So often the older kids will bring their two to three year old siblings to school with them and then sit them just outside the classroom. 
and keep an eye on them while they're in their lessons. Um, so putting a jungle gym in with monkey bars, um, and it was a metal gym that they wanted to do that's seaside, which would obviously mean um, rusting and then shards of metal um, with very young children that can climb on things and fall down and hurt themselves in a very rural African community that doesn't have any healthcare available, you are asking for a broken arm for a kid. Like you, you can't do that kind of thing. And, and the teacher tried to tell, sorry, the teacher of the Mozambique school had tried to tell the teacher of this South African school and the school hadn't actually, the South African school hadn't checked with the Mozambican school if they could even do this. They just walked into the school and said, we want to help and we want to do this rather than saying, do you need help? Would you like us to do this? I got very frustrated because the um, head teacher of the South African school kept saying he wanted to do this. And I, I, I had now got involved in the conversation. I was like, I think you need to think about the needs of the community and whether this is appropriate. Maybe you could help out with some of our projects that have already been agreed by the elders and the teachers and stuff. The, this teacher wasn't backing down. And, and um, the head teacher of the Mozambique school asked to walk around the grounds with me, i.e. have a private conversation. <laughs> um, and so Pascal, our community outreach manager, myself and the Mozambique head teacher had a walk around the school and, and the Mozambique head teacher just said, look, why don't we just let them do it and we'll take it down after they've left. And I was like, but that is such a waste of time and money. Like the money that they're spending on that can be used to construct some of the next classroom. Um, they, they like there's a whole building team here that's Mozambican that needs like that we could build some of the next classroom with that money that they're using and it's just such a waste and eventually we got this um South African teacher to to back down but he wanted his kids to do like physical labor and I was like yeah but if physical labor isn't what's actually required of the job then like why and he was like look and these are his exact words to me he said look I don't care if you get the kids to dig a hole and you fill it in with cement after we leave. I just need them to do something. And I looked at him and I was just like, look, sorry, we, we don't do that. Um, you're going to have to work completely separately because I can't associate with you. And I think seeing stuff like that happen when you see other people act in such an atrocious way, um, I think that can be a real awakening um, where you see it and you're just like, wow, that is so inappropriate. I need to make sure that I'm never, ever, ever perceived to do that. And although you might not intentionally do it and you might not see it from someone else's perspective, it is really important to kind of put yourself in someone else's shoes and think about what impact you could be having on those people and, and the way that you're being perceived and who you represent as well. Because um, that teacher, his actions, whilst I'm sure a lot of the kids and probably a lot of the teachers at that school wouldn't have acted the same way, he's still representing that whole school. So it's also important to think about that as well. So, yeah, it's a very interesting issue. That's a crazy story. <laughs> um, and I'm sure I'm just like extrapolating that and thinking about all of the different scenarios going on around the world and, and you know, a lot of people being, of course, well-intentioned, but maybe not thinking things through or working closely enough with the local community. So thanks for um, breaking that down for us a bit. I think this ties in well with the ethical travel question, voluntourism. You mentioned you do a lot of talks around the UK about this in the email you sent. People maybe not being aware of what ethical travel looks like. And, and this goes back to, I mean, you're on the ground, you are 
ingratiated in the community there. But, you know, a lot of us may just be traveling, but wanting to volunteer or do different things uh, along the way. You mentioned ethical animal interactions, too. I mean, there's uh, a lot to consider with with that as well. I mean, I know like visiting elephants in Thailand, for example, is a popular thing. And I don't know much about because I haven't done that or gone and done research on that. So, yeah, I would love to hear your your tips on um how people can suss out what is yeah what they can and can't do basically or what they should or shouldn't do yeah i think ethical travel is a difficult one because there's basically loads of legislation around the uk uh, and around the world with different travel companies depending on where their headquarters is and where they're a registered company there's different health and safety legislation but generally there is some health and safety legislation in place um however with ethics there is no legal uh legislation in place so an organization can have its headquarters in america in norway in england wherever but if they run a project in uh i don't know thailand let's say they can do elephant riding if they want to and there's no legal thing stopping them from doing that elephant riding a lot of people don't know but basically in order for someone to be able to ride an elephant that elephant has to go through um i can't remember the thai word for it but the translation is um breaking of the soul which is basically when the elephant is tortured for a week or longer it's tied up it's literally um cut uh, and burned and tortured in lots and lots of different ways and then they introduce a healer so they introduce one human that then looks after that elephant and um brings it back to health and that healer is the person that you see walking around with a bull hook to guide uh the elephant supposedly um and so elephants are wild animals they're not meant to be ridden you can't ride an elephant on safari in south africa um you can at some unethical places but again they've been through um a process that enables you to ride them which is very cruel but in terms of um just a normal if you drove through kruger for instance in south africa you can't just hop out your car and jump on the back of an elephant because it's a wild animal generally the rule with wild animals is that they are wild so interacting with them in captivity is a no-no um and that's marine and that's land so you have like um uh lions and tigers and things like that that are also kept in captivity a lot uh and south africa and thailand are two of the most unethical countries in terms of animal tourism uh so it's really important to do your research before you go i'm not saying that every um company in those countries is unethical I'm saying that you just need to be careful and do your research before you go. Because what's happening in Thailand now is that um, people are beginning to wake up and realize that elephant rival, but they've actually got, um, so now what's happening is the places where you can go and ride elephants, the company, the mother company, will actually open up another branch where they um, say that they are a sanctuary and that you can go and watch the elephants bathe. Uh, they've supposedly saved them from the riding, but it's actually owned by the same company. And there was actually a National Geographic expose article on this, um, where this company took the elephants and rotated them from the riding excursion, because they're all in very close geographical 
like location they took the elephants from the riding and they'd give them like a day off in the baths but people were paying money to go and watch the elephants bath thinking that they were doing the ethical thing not riding them but didn't know that it was actually the same company because the company had gone through the pains of having um, one big mother company and then two kind of separate entities underneath it and they only publicized the separate entity names and actually took this reporter to like um, go in at night time and actually see some of the uh, elephants that were still tied up and being tortured in the bathing area to actually even realize that it was going on. Um, so with elephants, it's pretty bad. Uh, with the lions, a lot of them are drugged or their teeth are removed um, to allow you to interact with them, the, the lions, the tigers, um, the cats and stuff. Um, and then there's also, uh, there's actually a, a lodge that's still open in South Africa because again, there's no actual legal legislation stopping this from happening. Um, and I think this was Africa geographic again, that, um, I was reading about this happening in, but basically this kid had, um, gone, I think it was from the UK on a two week, um, trip on their gap year and they'd gone and like helped out at a lion sanctuary and they thought they were, you know, doing the right thing. They'd been told that they'd been doing the right thing. And this girl had gone and, and volunteered and spent two weeks feeding lion cubs and, you know, um, cleaning out cages and stuff. And she'd gone home and she was boasting about it, um, as you do when you go to somewhere that you really, really uh, enjoyed. And she was telling all her friends about it. And then someone, um, she was t telling someone about it in a coffee shop and someone overheard. And the person was like, oh, are you talking about this place? And um, she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they were like, oh, you should look into uh, what happens to those lions when they get older. And um, she then began to dig and dig and dig and dig. And it turned out that this company um, that still exists and still does this and whose website is better than ours when they talk about education and research. It's, it's so disconcerting to read. Um, but they basically make money off the cubs um, when they're small cubs because uh, the tourists can come in and they'll feed them and they um, go through a lot of tourists every day and they make a lot of money from that they then rent those cubs out to parties as well um, so the cubs can go to like clubs and stuff like that where basically drunk people pet them once they get to like a little bit older a bit bigger then you can do a walk with the lions experience and then once they're fully grown, they just vanish from this um, supposed sanctuary and rehabilitation center. When she was there, she asked them what was happening. And they kept saying, oh, well, they're released. They're rehabilitated. We've released them into the wild. But the thing is, is that when you rehabilitate an animal, they cannot come into contact with humans because humans are a predator. So if you rehabilitate an animal... Um, if you go to a rehabilitation um, center and they're saying, oh, you can pet this, it's being rehabilitated, that's a lie. That's just straight up a lie. And there's no legal um, things stopping them from saying that either. So they can legally tell you that and it can just be completely false. Basically, after a lot of digging, she found out that the lines were being sold into what's called canned hunting. And canned hunting is essentially where people come and they pay a lot of money. It's very popular in America and they're one of the biggest clients in South Africa, Americans. Um, but you got pay literally thousands of dollars to go and these animals are put into a cage, which is, it's, it's big ish, but it's not like a big open savannah kind of thing. 
Um, but they put some trees in there and they make it seem like you're hunting. But the animal has been trained to um, perceive humans as friends. So doesn't have that natural fight or flight instinct. Um, and it's also in a very much smaller cage. And this person is armed with like, you know, proper goggles, night fishing goggles and um, a gun and all the rest of it and has people with them. Um, but essentially they pay to hunt this animal that's then shot and they get the they get the um, mane of it and they can keep it and make a rug out of it and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's, again, very unethical because uh, these animals are just bred for profit. Like they're, they're, they spend their younger years being petted and, and fed by tourists um, and then they are sold to be shot. So there's a lot of things to think about there. When it comes to marine life, uh, again, mammals are a big no-no so there's a big argument at the moment um because a lot of uh educational um centers are saying that they need like one animal of that species to be an ambassador and there is an argument for that if um they have a background which means that they can't be released into the wild so if they were bred in captivity um but bred in captivity is still a gray area because if that company's bred it in captivity on purpose then obviously they're just doing that to make money if they like there's um, a rehabilitation center in south africa where they have a lion that's from a circus so obviously a circus lion cannot be released into the wild so i guess that's kind of fair enough if you have that as an as an ambassador um but there shouldn't be loads and loads of different animals and and of the same species as well um that are all being labeled as ambassadors so it's really important kind of to pay attention to that as well um there's a lot of problems with a lot of dolphins in captivity because dolphins in captivity are usually caught from the wild um there's a really good documentary called um the cove um i'd recommend watching it it's called the cove it's by um the ocean preservation society and um Rico Barry, who runs the Dolphin Project, and it's about dolphins in captivity and how um, most of them are caught in Tai Chi in Japan. And it's a mass migration of dolphins. Um, and then all these dolphins are herded into this cove. And the trainers from lots of very well known, I won't name any places, but very well known centers that do like dolphin shows. Um, they go and they select the dolphins uh, that are the prettiest, which are generally bottlenose dolphins. And then the rest of the dolphins are killed for their meat um, and they're just harpooned um, in this cove. And it's really horrific. And on top of that, you've also got the psychological part for the animal as well. Um, so dolphins and orcas are mammals. So they have bigger brains than we do. Um, they have more of their brain working more efficiently than we do as well. Um, and keeping a dolphin or an orca in captivity is like locking a human in a bathtub for, for 50 years. Um, you're going to go insane. The only time an orca has ever killed a human uh, has been in captivity. There have been none in the wild, and that's because of psychosis, essentially. Hmm. I mean, it sounds like you just should not do any animal experiences, like come come to terms with the fact, like, if whatever, if your dreams are sim with the dolphins, uh, then... Um, too bad you you can swim with them in the ocean if they come up to you right (laughs) 
Yeah, I think um, it needs to be wild interactions. So it's important as well that if you're interacting with them in the wild, it's done in the right way too. So there's um, an organization called the World Cetacean Alliance, which is basically this global organization, which lots of other um, organizations, dive centers, uh, marine operators can all sign up to. And they develop best practice on how to interact with a dolphin or a whale. Um, so it's things like, you know, keeping a certain distance. And if the animal interacts with you, um, then uh, that's great and that's totally fine. But you can't chase that animal to make them interact with you. Um, and you don't want to stress the animal out. Um, there's also a really good Facebook page, Volunteers in Africa Beware. Um, obviously, it's only Africa, but they rate a lot of different organizations if you're looking at volunteering um, into the good, the bad and the ugly list. And they do a lot of research into like the owners of each organization and if they're associated with candidates. Um, it's a Facebook page, so it's called um, Volunteers in Africa Beware. Um, and uh, they have a list that they update very regularly called the good, the bad and the ugly. And obviously you want to be only really going to organizations called the good. And if you want to do like a rehabilitation project or anything like that, then I would recommend only going with ones that are on the good list. But you can still do that. There are organizations that are legitimate um, that you can do that with. But because it's a sexy thing for people, a lot of people want to do it. Um, that's where the kind of volunteerism industry has boomed and people are kind of being dishonest about exactly um, how organizations are run and whether rehabilitation actually is a thing that's happening. Okay. Do you have any other resources like that, like websites or other reputable yeah, places? So, um, I can send the links to you as well after the podcast, but um, there's a good book called uh, The Volunteer Handbook. Um, I can't remember who it's by uh, at the moment, but it's a green and white cover. And um, that's that's only about humans, but that's still a really good one. Um, that's basically around um, human interaction. So orphanage volunteering is also something that's kind of slowly being stopped now because there's been a lot of research on um, human interactions and how when you're a volunteer, you'll go somewhere. So let's say you're going and volunteering at an orphanage, you'll go and volunteer at an orphanage for like a three month period. And that kid who's already vulnerable is in this orphanage and forms an attachment to you over that three month period. And then you leave and the next person comes and the same thing happens again. And essentially these kids are growing up with severe attachment disorders um, as a result of the volunteers um going through the institution um so orphanage volunteering should be something that you're either doing for a very long time um or you're doing for a very short time um it shouldn't be something that you do for like a three-month period uh the volunteer handbook basically is written by a mother and a daughter that traveled the world together volunteering and um, they don't cover any animal stuff they only cover the human stuff but again it's still a very interesting read um, so I'd recommend reading that. Um, unfortunately, there's not a lot out there on animal interactions and the ethics around that. Um, we're thinking of writing a book at some point in the future. Maybe we'll get it done in this COVID crisis. Um, but uh, we do have some stuff on our website, lovetheoceans.org, around um, making sure that you're choosing an, an organization that's ethical because you need them to be, if you're looking at volunteering, um, you need them to be financially transparent so you know where your money is going because you don't want to be paying $3,000 to sleep on the floor of um, a host family's house because that host family is going to be getting paid virtually nothing and the cost of 
that for the organization is virtually nothing because if you're because I've heard of people going and paying thousands to live somewhere where there's no running water no electricity and you know get back to nature is how they bill it but the cost of that is very minimal so you shouldn't be paying thousands to be going and doing that um so you need financial transparency from the organization um we actually have a a breakdown on our website so hopefully the organization would have a breakdown on their website that's publicly available anyway um you then need them to be good on their health and safety. You don't want to go somewhere where they haven't risk assessed things and they're not thinking about um, your health and safety. Um, and then you also need them to be good on ethics as well. So if you're going to be working with under 18s, they should have asked you for a criminal record check. And if they haven't, they don't care about the kids that they're working with. There's been historic cases of like people going abroad um, and volunteering with children. Um, and if they're not checking your record, you could be a paedophile. And there have been cases of paedophiles going abroad and abusing children abroad. Um, so, yeah, they need to be checking your record. They need to be interacting with animals ethically. They need to be, if it's an aid organization, they need to be providing aid but not creating dependency because dependency of a community on a charity that could dissolve at any point is not a good thing because when it does eventually move away, that community will be screwed. So um, thinking about the long project too. Thank you for all that. I mean, it's a, it's a huge topic, obviously. And I mean, this is yeah. Sorry. No, no. It's, I mean, we could yeah, we could have done a whole podcast on that. I'm sure with the internet, thankfully, we have some of these resources now to look into stuff a bit more. I think than before the internet existed and and uh, conversations like this i think bring these issues to people's attention as well so thank you for that it's a a, a time i remember just being a younger travel like you just don't know these things you don't know what you don't know kind of so it's um it's important to have these uh, kind of chats so thank you for that um yeah just a couple more things and and I don't know a lot about what it's going to take to clean up the ocean. It, se- it seems like overfishing and coral reefs are dying and all of this stuff. I mean, we have we gone past the point of no return or can the oceans be saved? I mean, we are in a troublesome time. Um, and it, I think it's a cultural shift that is required to save the oceans. Um, so the consumerism is the main issue. Um, so yeah, plastics are a problem. Yeah. Overfishing is a problem, but it all does come down, come down to over consuming, um, and an overpopulation of the planet. So people need to reduce the number of kids they're having and reduce the amount of goods they're consuming. So instead of that, like mindset of I, I earned this, so I deserve it and I'm going to buy it. You need to kind of start thinking of, do I really need this? And what are the environmental implications of it? It's a big cultural shift, though, that is required um, because it's essentially going back to pre-plastic creation, for instance, like um, because plastic was created because it's so easy. It's convenient. Like if you want lunch, you can and you're at work, you can just pop out to the supermarket and grab a salad off the shelf. But that salad comes in a plastic container with a plastic lid. And whilst that's a two minute use for you, that tub then lasts for 400 years. So it's a really big impact that you're having as a result of that food. But to be able to change that, you then need 
either the supermarket to start stocking stuff that's plastic free or you'd need the person to pre-prepare their food so it's more effort basically and it's a complete different mindset that we need to get into to solve these massive environmental problems that we're facing today with all of these things that we've talked about i mean how do you and especially you being so uh, close to these issues working with your organization and you know seeing these things firsthand and obviously you're you're a marine biologist you've uh, read a, a lot of other books related to ethical travel and and all these issues is it tough to kind of stay positive about the world do you know what i mean like is it sometimes yeah, just yeah. kind of like man what the hell's wrong with everybody <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> it's just like yeah, it's these mini existential crises all the time. Like, is that is that a struggle for you, or do you have like a healthy perspective on that? How do you deal with that? I'm really good at compartmentalizing, <laughs> um, so I can just put something away in a corner in my brain and be like, I'm not going to think about that right now. Um, and I think that can be a good and a bad thing <laughs> at the same time, um, but it does help me kind of not get too over emotional. Um, and I think the scientific training that I've had has always taught me to think about, um, okay, that's a problem, but what can we do to solve it rather than dwell on the problem? And that's something that I, well, both Andrea and I brought into the Love the Oceans team. We kind of have an ongoing joke, but also it's, it's a joke, but it's serious. Um, whenever there's a problem, uh, a staff member has a problem, we don't want them to come to us and go, Hey, I've got this problem. We want them to come to us and go, Hey, I've got this problem. I've thought about this as a possible solution, even though it might not be the solution. It's a starting point. And I think it's really important to focus on what you can do to change things rather than get too caught up in because um, that can turn into a very downward spiral very quickly because um, there are so many major environmental problems that we are facing and it is our generation and, and the next 50 years that are going to probably even less time than that, that we're going to see some, well, the make or break of, of the human race, really. It's going to require people adapting and changing, but also demanding change from suppliers. So it's and don't get me wrong, I think we all do need to do our bit and consume less and, and you know, switch to energy saving light bulbs and things like that. But as well as that, um, the big culprits are the people who are supplying who you're buying products from. Because sure, I would love to buy a phone that or a laptop or whatever that was completely carbon neutral and didn't like burn any energy and was made was recycled and all of that kind of stuff and had zero environmental impact but as far as i'm aware not one exists and certainly not one that's um affordable and if you look at like plastic free lifestyles for instance a lot of that is also more expensive than living and just a normal lifestyle where you can use plastic all the time um so it's also about putting pressure on the suppliers to be more responsible essentially um and giving us the option that's financially feasible to live more sustainably yeah systemic change is a big uh a big thing that's not easily done by the way related to that topic i wanted to mention the book factfulness i don't know if you've ever read that but i interviewed one of the the co-author of that book and it's it's uh it's based on facts that basically demonstrate why things are getting better in many aspects of uh of life in the world. So if you need some encouragement, that book, 
<laughs> yeah, definitely. Helped I'll me. I'll add it to my list. I've got a list of books that I want to read at the moment. Yeah. Factfulness. Who's the author, sorry? Factfulness. I've interviewed the co-author, which was uh, Anna uh, Rosling was her name, I believe. She was the co-author with her father-in-law, who is, is no longer uh, alive, but his name's Hans Rosling. And he is a very uh, well-respected international public health expert. You know, worked with the UN, you know, very, uh, very involved with these issues throughout his life. So, uh, and also pretty funny and, and well-written. So I'd, I'd recommend that book. Okay, cool. And, uh, if you want to hear, definitely have that, have a read. I ha- yeah, I have the, uh, interview, like I said, with the, on the, in the feed too. So if you want to hear more about that, okay, let's just finish with uh travel stuff. Tell us why we should go to Mozambique. Um, what are some of your favorite dive spots around the world? I don't know. Let's talk a little travel here. So, um, Mozambique, why come here? It is tropical paradise. So, it is pretty much what you would think of when you think of tropical paradise. Palm trees, uh, white beaches that are basically deserted. There's not much of a tourism industry and it's off the beaten track. Um, so, it's you're not going to go somewhere that's you have to share a beach with like a million other people. When I go out on the beach, I'm the only one there. Um, the other day I went out for a paddle on my paddleboard at like 3 PM and there were five other people on the, um, probably about 10 kilometer stretch of coastline that I was on. There were five other people, uh, on the beach. So, um, yeah, it's secluded. So you get away from all the kind of hustle and bustle of everyday life and, it's yeah, very, very beautiful. Obviously, it depends on what part of Mozambique you go to. We're in Jangamo. Um, so that's in Yamban Airport. So you have to fly to Johannesburg and then up to where well, you can fly to Maputo, which is the main city. And then you fly from Maputo up to um, in Yamban. Yeah, we have amazing megafauna. Obviously, it's hot. So it's a nice beach getaway. Uh, but we have amazing whales um, in, in particular between June and October. But the whale tracks and the manta rays are pretty incredible to see too. All, all of that kind of stuff. And, and the there is some culture as well. There's city walking tours that you can do in Indian Barn, which is um, really interesting. And then we also do a cultural tour around the area to kind of learn about Mozambique culture and what um, living like a normal, um, your average Mozambique person looks like. So yeah, coming to Mozambique, I would definitely recommend Um I fell in love with it, so I think other people would too. <laughs> um, and then your other question was, oh yeah, best places in the world to dive. Ooh, that's a tricky one. I've heard um, getting certified is, uh, like Honduras, I guess, is a good place to do it, I've heard. Um, Yeah, there are a few different places um, that are good to learn. Um, all of like the Caribbean's beautiful, obviously, and quite calm water that's quite easy. Um, it depends how you want to learn. So I kind of always say that people who learn at our base in Mozambique can dive anywhere because Mozambique diving is not very easy. Um, there's surface currents and there's surge and things like that. And the visibility can vary quite a lot, but it's actually better to, in my opinion, better to learn in, in more difficult conditions because it prepares you for diving anywhere in the world. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so that said, um, if you want to learn somewhere that's a bit calmer, then yeah, the Caribbean's great. Um, Red Sea in Egypt is really beautiful. Um, and obviously Cairns, out of Great Barrier Reef in Australia, 
um, that's pretty amazing too. Um, I would actually recommend liverboards. If you're into diving, liverboards are really great. You literally wake up, dive four times a day. You eat a nap in between dives. It is living the life <laughs> and you just do that for like a week a week and a half uh, however long you want to do and there are so many liverboards in all the best spots and you also get to go to the um outer areas that you wouldn't be able to reach on day trips on boats so you get to go to the spots that the tourists your average tourist doesn't get to go to so in in australia i worked for a company called mike ball and um, that's out of great barrier so you go from cairns yeah you go from cairns and then you finish at lizard island but you go out i think it's like 300 miles out to sea it's, it's miles out to sea but you get to these atolls and these reefs that are just mind-blowingly beautiful and you dive there no other boats are around like we went past the point they did an announcement where they were like and no medical emergencies from now on because the helicopter would run out of fuel before it gets to us so yeah you get to go to places that are really out there if you go on liverboards um so outer great barrier reef is amazing mike ball also includes a low-lying flight over the um, barrier reef as well which is really beautiful to see it from the air um but i was recently in indonesia working for mermaid liverboards which is again another liverboard company and indonesia is mind-blowingly beautiful if you want corals that is the place to go um corals and manta rays uh it's just such abundant sea life. Um, the corals are just like layered. It's it's amazing. It's um, like in Finding Nemo when all the fish are right at the beginning where you've got like traffic jams of fish and it looks like a motorway of fish. That's what Indonesia is like. It's really incredible and stunning. And um, it's slightly more difficult diving. So I wouldn't really recommend learning there. But there will be some places in Indonesia. I was in Raja Ampat, which is a marine reserve. Again, you get to go to some of the really off the beaten track areas and you don't see many other vessels while you're out there, which is kind of the dream really for divers. But there's also like other, Indonesia obviously is loads of different islands and quite widely spread. So there's lots of different places that you can go. But once you're certified and, and you feel confident in the water, I'd recommend getting to Raja Ampat because that's just some pretty incredible diving. The visibility is I was shooting in like 50 meters, probably more viz. Um, and yeah, it like that's pretty amazing. Red Sea was pretty cool too. That was a couple of years ago now. And then also Mexico, the cenotes in Mexico, they're freshwater systems. And some of them are glacial, um, glacial, glaciers have formed them and some of them meteorites have formed them. So some of them are straight down, those are meteorite ones. And some of them are like kilometers and kilometers of uh cave systems which are pitch black so you have your torch and your body has their torch and your instructor has their torch and that's the only light um and you swim through these insane underwater cave systems um and the visibility again it's fresh water so it's really really amazing there's it's like swimming through the air um so those are probably my top places um recently at least sounds like a pretty epic list <laughs> yeah now i'm at the point where i'm just kind of bucket list diving because i do photography in january's and i'll pick a country that i really want to go to and i'll go i'll go and find a job there for a few weeks um just as a freelancer so now i'm at the point where i'm like i'm just going to go to each of the places that i really 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 want to go to so i'm hoping galapagos next year 
that's meant to be really insane. And again, um, with the liverboards, uh, Darwin's arch, which is the place where you get like all those insane photos of the shoals of hammerheads swimming overhead, um, that you can only reach on, I think it's a handful of liverboards, maybe even less actually get out that far. Cause it's quite far. Um, you can't do it on a day trip from what I understand. So, um, again, kind of look into staying overnight on a boat. Um, if you do that, I would recommend taking seasickness medication. <laughs> um, if the weather picks up when you're out, then that can be tricky if you're not good with rough water. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, of course, your website is lovetheoceans.org. Uh, am I missing anything or is that the place for people to go? No, that's, yeah, they can go and check out the website. We've also got our Instagram and our Twitter and Facebook and all that kind of stuff, which is just at Love the Oceans. Can you send us a picture or two uh, or send it to me and I'll post it up with the show of you maybe uh, wh- where you're at down in Mozambique or maybe just a couple shots of uh, so we can get the vibe of uh, what it's like down there? Yeah, definitely. I can definitely do that. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for your time and you know, best of luck with everything that you're doing. I know you're doing some great stuff down there and it's much needed. So congratulations on everything. Thanks for having me, so Jason. Far. And yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. There you have it. Thank you so much once again, Francesca, for stopping by today's show. She opened my eyes to some new things that I need to think about as a traveler. You know, we can't ever make all the right decisions as human beings, but we could do our best. And I think just listening to conversations like this, being open to learning from people that have other perspectives or different experiences than we have at least for me, it opens up my mind and reminds me that I need to pay attention and really try my best to make good decisions when I'm traveling or otherwise. So again, we're all doing the best we can, but just being open to more education and changing desires or behaviors in some ways, can we can all make our own little difference in the world, right? Just by acting as individuals, we can make a difference. We do make a difference. It might seem small, but of course, extrapolate that. If thousands or millions of people are doing that, then it's not so small. So your actions matter and your choices matter. And you matter to me, my friend. Thanks so much for uh, spending time here with me today. I have to give you a couple things before I let you go. One, a huge shout out. I got an email the other day and kind of kind of blew my mind started started tearing me up a little bit and uh you'll hear why because i'm going to read it to you right now this was from megan she started off just telling me about her previous work in the hospice thrift store she was running which was run by volunteers and they helped provide end-of-life care for anyone who couldn't afford it and also grief support to children But she goes on to say, we are now in the time of COVID. I've been redeployed from the now closed retail store and I'm working at the hospice facility itself. Every day I show up in my scrubs, prepare my work cart and spend the eight hours repeatedly sanitizing 
all of the high-touch surfaces in the building. Most of the rooms are empty. The patients are only allowed one visitor a day. Everyone wears masks and keeps their polite distance. Several times a day, there's a pink light that comes on over a patient's room. Within an hour, we are all called to stand for a processional as the family leaves the building with the deceased. I try to stand where I can gaze out at the magnolias blooming in the courtyard as the grieving family passes. Sometimes there's music, sometimes not. Sometimes the body is covered, sometimes not. Sometimes the quiet reality of it all makes me cry, sometimes not. What I would like to say is thank you, my sanity during this, as my four-year-old says, uh, quote-unquote silliness, has come from what I get to listen to while repeatedly sanitizing all those services and pausing for all the processionals. I started with the four-hour work week, then Man's Search for Meaning, Meaning, which is a great book by Viktor Frankl. And uh, now I am digging into the Zero to Travel and Location Indie podcast. Our planning has begun. My husband and I have always been travelers, but have found it challenging to fully commit to location independence. We spent three months traveling around the world. We backpacked in Patagonia. And last summer, we spent three months living in Amsterdam with our then three-year-old daughter. We always find the return to work after these life-changing experiences to be an enormous challenge. I'm doing my best to use this time away from my normally demanding work to find a new path for our family. The insight I'm gaining as I listen to your interviews has given me the confidence to take some first steps towards earning freedom of time and location. (laughs) Sorry, that was a lot. I just want you to know that even as we are all stuck close to home, your work is appreciated and important. Thank you again for everything you're doing. She signed it much love and appreciation and, you know, much love and appreciation to you, Megan, to everybody that's doing their part and also uh, on the front lines, which I can only imagine how intense and traumatic that is. Much love to you, Megan. Much love to you all. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Hey, humans have been through a lot in history and we're going to get through this too. So stay strong, my friends. I love y'all. And I'm going to leave you with a quote from uh, another name I'm going to (laughs) butcher. I mean, how do I pronounce this? T-S-O-K-N-Y-I. Tisnoki? Tisnoki? Rinpoche? There you go. That's the best I can do. Who said, <laughs> let yourself become that space that welcomes any experience without judgment. Let yourself become that space that welcomes any experience without judgment. Hope to chat with you soon, my friend. Go ahead. If you forget to do it, now's a good time. Sign up over at zerototravel.com and you can hop on our newsletter list and get invited to some of the online events we're doing so you can connect with other people in this community. We'd love to see your face around there. And of course, you can get in touch directly anytime, Jason at zerototravel.com. So I'll let you go about your day. Thank you for your time. Have a wonderful day and I'll see you next time, my friends. Cheers. Peace. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality. 